You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening is Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the Doe of the Dawn, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord... Do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. 
They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for that word, for the word of Psalm 22. God, we want to understand it more clearly. We want to understand the word made flesh, our Lord Jesus, even more clearly because of this psalm. So we pray for eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Welcome to Christ Church. If you are visiting, we are so glad you're here. We'd love to meet you and greet you and get to know you better. Uh, I, I, I was thinking this week about being lost. Have, have, have you ever, do you remember as a child ever getting separated from your parents? I have this faint and foggy memory of being in a department store when I was like three or four years old and I was separated from my mom. It was probably like 30 seconds to maybe like two minutes, but it was seemingly like the most terrifying 30 to two minutes, 30 seconds to two minutes I've ever had, right? Like kids, have you ever been in a place where you got separated from your parents? That's a scary thing, right? Where you thought you got lost. Why is that scary, kids? When you get separated from your parents, why is it scary? When you go to a busy place, a place that isn't your house, a place that isn't your school, a place that you are uncomfortable with, you don't know the way around, you really do depend on your parents to help you. They can see things that you can't because they're taller than you. They can tell you where to go. They can keep you safe. They can get you home to the place where you are safe and secure. But when you're alone, it can be scary, right? As you get older, many of us begin to value more times of being alone, right? But it all depends on the context, doesn't it? When you want to be alone or if you actually do want to be with people. But if you want to feel the belonging, feel the security of being with others when you want it and then it gets ripped away from you, it can be just as scary, just as disorienting as when you were a small child. There is a reason why isolation, solitary isolation, is one of the most difficult and horrible punishments that prisons can give to inmates. There's a reason why that show alone is so stressful and difficult. In that survival reality show, it's almost always just uh, that just as many people give up and quit for psychological reasons rather than physical reasons. They miss being with people more than they miss like their refrigerator or their warm bed. Well, Psalm 22 that you just heard Patrick read is all about isolation. It's all about loneliness. David, the writer, at least at the beginning of the psalm, is scared. He is disoriented. And yet throughout the psalm, he is comforted by the reality that despite the uncertainty of his daily experience, that is, that he doesn't necessarily experience God like he would want to, he is nevertheless comforted by God's faithful presence. Psalm 22, again, just like the last two weeks we've been uh, if you're visiting with us these, this Advent season, we have just been going through Psalm 20, 21, 22, and then next week in 23. This psalm may not very much feel like a Christmas psalm, but it is all about God's presence with his people. And therefore, it's a Christmas psalm. It is Emmanuel, God with us. And so we're going to see this play out in four parts this evening, three difficult parts to begin with, and then one glorious one. We're going to see God's presence in silence, God's presence in scorn, God's presence in struggle, and God's presence in salvation. His presence in silence, scorn, struggle, and salvation. How do you like that? 
alliteration. But here is the thing about this psalm. If you are remotely familiar with the Bible, if you are even remotely familiar with the story of Jesus, the very first verse that you heard Patrick read, in verse 1, right off the bat, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did you think of? Christ on the cross. That sentence that Jesus utters while hanging on the cross is often called the cry of dereliction. Dereliction means abandonment, like someone is found guilty of like a dereliction of duty or something. He's abandoned his responsibilities. Jesus feeling alone. And so as we're going to see tonight, this is one of, if not the most of the so-called, most clear of the so-called messianic psalms in the Bible. The psalms, the kind of psalms that just have to be pointing forward toward something greater than the writer originally or even anticipated some, towards some future greater fulfillment. So let's get after it here. Let's get into this in first, beginning in verse 1, with God's presence in silence. We don't know when or in what context David wrote this psalm, but he begins verse 1 with the famous, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then why are you so far from saving me? from the words of my groaning. The later context shows that he is likely in a position of danger. He is surrounded by enemies, and he is concerned. He is worried that God is not showing up, that he is not going to deliver, them, to deliver him, that he, God has left David alone by himself. David is wrestling through an apparent contradiction between the theology that he believes about God on the one hand, and then his experience of God on the other what he believes, and then what he is experiencing. His theology says God answers prayer. His experience in this moment says, no, he doesn't. God is silent. His theology says God blesses the righteous and curses the wicked. His experience says, no, God curses the righteous and blesses the wicked. This is similar to so many of the other so-called Psalms of Lament, in which the psalmists, very often David, are asking questions of God. How long, O Lord? Like, why? Why is this happening? How long will you be silent? How long will you be distant? Why do the wicked prosper? I don't understand. In all of these prayers, it seems like David is wavering in his faith. Like if he was praying some of these psalms in one of your living rooms, in uh, one of our gospel community gatherings, and somebody over there on the recliner or on the couch on the other side of the living room said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You might kind of like give the side eye, like, is she okay? Is he okay? Like, do we need to have a Bible study right now and show that God is present? But think about this. David is working through these supposed contradictions because of his faith in God's character, because of his covenantal promises. He is not wavering in his faith. If he truly believed that God had completely abandoned him, if he truly believed that God had forsaken him, then why pray, right? Because if God is not there, if he does not hear, then this is just a waste of time. But because of his dogged and refusing to give up faith in God, David cries out to him with honest and often even emotional language, even bringing complaints to God, his complaints to God. A few years ago, we went through several Psalms of Lament, and we said that to complain about God is sin. 
when I say to you or I say to myself, God is not good. God does not care. God is gone. He is not acting in alignment with his character. He is not doing what is right. This is faithlessness, and it must be the kind of thoughts that we take captive and that we must repent of. But when I say to God, God, I don't understand. Why? Why is this happening? Why are you silent? When I do that, when I'm calling God to act in accordance with his character and his promises that I actually believe, this is faith. And so he said that to complain about God is sin, but to complain to God is a psalm. Is actually calling God in faith to act on his character, to act on his promises, not because I don't believe, but because I do. And this is what David then goes on to say in verses three through five, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. I don't understand, why are you silent? Why do I feel so alone? But I believe you, I trust you, how I've proved you over, over and over and over. I want to believe, help my unbelief. Oh, for grace to trust you more. Verse four, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. You have acted in response to the prayers of your people before. And so David is still struggling through this supposed contradiction. You've done this in the past. You did it then. And so why not now? Why will you not respond? Why can I not hear you? Why are you seemingly not answering my prayers? Anyone? Does this hit home? I want to be married so badly, and I'm not. God is not providing. My boss or my manager or my coworkers are making things so unbelievably difficult. Why does he bless the wicked? My marriage feels impossible. My marriage is crumbling or has crumbled. Life feels impossible. Life feels like it is crumbling or has crumbled. I've lost my job. I've lost my health. I've lost my way. I feel like a child, abandoned, scared, and disoriented. Anyone? Many of us in this room right now. But despite the silence of God, David says in verse 3, yet... This is what I'm experiencing, yet this is what is true. Yet you are holy, yet you have acted in history, and we can say the same thing. I do trust your character. I do trust your past action, both in the ways that you have provided for me personally in the past, and certainly in seeing all of the ways that you have provided for your people throughout history. As the old saying goes, do not forget in the darkness what you have believed in the light. The things that you know to be true right now in the light do not change just because things become dark. The difficulty of the present does not nullify or disqualify all of the good that you have experienced from God in the past. God is present even if it feels though he is silent. He has spoken to us. He has spoken to us in his son. He has spoken to us in his word. Or again, as another old saying goes, you want to hear God speak? Are you feeling his silence? Do you want to hear him speak to you? Then just read the Bible. Do you want to hear him speak audibly? Read the Bible out loud. He has spoken. He is present, 
even if it feels like temporary or even long-term silence. But there's more difficulty. If God is present in silence, he is also present in scorn. So secondly, God's presence in scorn. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. David says that he is a worm. He is the lowest of the low. Something, a creature that we cannot see that is both corrupt and corrupting. Meaning, a worm, an unseen creature of the dirt, a creature that lives in the dark without eyes, a creature who is both among the dead and feeds on the dead. A worm is not something that is very glorious. David says, that's me. David's enemies taunt him. They scorn him by saying that his belief in God is stupid. His belief in God is pointless. His belief in God ultimately will be his death. It would be far better, they say, for David to give up on this obviously stupid belief in an invisible God. He is not real. He is not there. You are wasting your time. But if he is real, they say, if he's real, let him save you. Which is which they obviously do not expect him to do. David feels like the lowest creature on the planet, a worm. In decades past, perhaps centuries, maybe a century or two ago, this section of Psalm 22 would have perhaps been less felt for God's people in the West. But it is becoming increasingly thought of that belief in the God of the Bible and belief and expectations for the way that God expects life in this world are not only silly, but are dangerous. Not only backwards for you personally as a Christian, but hateful, even violent to the world around you. Scorn for God's people is here and is coming. But just like David first grounded the disorientation of God's silence with a yet, with a, this is what I'm experiencing, but. He responds with yet another yet in verse 9. He is being scorned, he feels low, and then he says in verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. As one commentator puts it, David thinks of himself as a worm, but he's a pretty special kind of worm that he is considering and reflecting on the fact that God has been basically utterly preoccupied with David since before he was born. This is what David is considering. He has formed him. He has put David in his mother's care. God has been present with him for his entire existence. And so he is saying to himself and calling on God to act. You have been there in the past. Be here in the present. And Oh, my soul, David is seemingly saying, do not forget now in the darkness what you have believed and experienced in the light. If God has cared for his people in the past, he will care for them in the present, even as we'll see if that means that God allows difficulty, if he allows struggle, if he allows even death. That does not mean God's complete and utter absence. And so even beyond the scorn of his enemies, David also feels the much more dangerous struggle against them. So now third, if God is present in silence and in scorn, he is present in times of struggle. 
In verses 16 through 20, David describes his enemies, likely his military enemies, as all kinds of wild and dangerous animals, as bulls, as lions, as dogs, as oxen. They have surrounded him, and they are trying to kill him. And David is now at the point where he has no more strength left. He's in the dust. He's dry. He's cracked. He's broken. He has no more courage, no more strength. And in verses 16 through 18, they are actually closing in. They are piercing his hands and feet. They are dividing his garments and casting lots over his clothing. His struggle is not just psychological. His struggle is not just philosophical. His his struggle is not just emotional. His struggle is not just about his own reputation and what people might think about him. His struggle is very existential. It is about life and death himself. He is scared. His enemies are closing in. And yet again, in the midst of fear, in the midst of disorientation, in the midst of aloneness, there is another yet, another but in verse 20. But you, or verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Despite the strength of David's enemies, the strength of God is stronger. He knows it. He trusts it. David is pleading with God to act. He has rescued David before from the horns of the wild oxen. So, oh God, do it again, David is praying. In the midst of all the disorienting confusion, God has been present in David's life, so be present now. But here, at this moment, at this hinge point, is where this psalm really begins to turn. As all psalms of lament do, though they begin in disorientation, though they begin in fear, though they begin in sadness and loss, they all eventually, by considering the character of God, by considering the promises of God, by considering the power of God, they nearly all turn to praise by the end. Did you you catch this when you were hearing Patrick read this? Like, if you just look at the first half of this psalm and then take the second half of the psalm, they're different psalms. And yet it is by working hard through all of this, by considering the character of God, that it gets to this, but it always gets to this. And so now in what turns into being like an increasingly rapid tornado of praise, David just goes off. And considering God, his fear has actually now turned to courage. His solitude has turned into security. So lastly, now we're going to see God's presence in salvation. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. What a turn. Oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have not forsaken me. And then all of you people, praise God with me. The very God that he was questioning just a few minutes ago. Despite it all, David believes and he tells the people, basically, hey, everyone, despite the circumstances surrounding us, the Lord lives and blessed be his name. Though you may experience his silence for a time, he he hears the cries of his people and he answers. He knows, he sees, 
He cares. He has not left us alone. And by that I mean, not only not alone and isolated from God, but not alone and isolated from God's people. Again, verse 1, David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation, the great assembly, the great gathering of God's people. One of the primary means that God moves towards and cares for his people is his people. Have you experienced this? He does not leave us to fend for ourselves, but he provides a body that we might grow into, that we might be nourished by, that we might be protected by. And finally now, David can see it. There is a real reversal when David can like lift up his head, considering all of the circumstances around him, and yet lift up his head and look around what also is around him. I've shared before the wisdom of one pastor who said, did you know that you can block out the noonday sun with a quarter? You can do this. On the noonday, depending on how close this quarter is to your eye, you can block out the entire sun. All you have to do is bring the quarter right up to your eye. We, we sometimes hold our problems and limitations to our eyes in that way, bringing them so close to our eyes we cannot see the great glowing sun of God's promises and God's power. When our eyes are on our problems, we will not remember God's word and how it applies to us. And so once David begins to lower the quarter, or even just extend the quarter, take his eyes off his problems for just a second, he can finally now see all that God has provided. Like Naomi, who returned from Moab in the book of Ruth, complaining that God had taken everything from her, and she had lost much. That he had, she's complaining to all of the people welcoming her back to Bethlehem. She is complaining that God has brought her back completely isolated, completely alone, with no one, not even remembering the most faithful, committed person that God could ever have given her in her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Verse 26, presumably in the company of God's people, David says to them, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. We are together, David is saying. We are all in this together. I am not alone, David is saying, as my enemies circle around me and enclose. We are in this together. And then what seems to be a toast to them in verse 26, he says, may your hearts live forever. But while this entire psalm has been hinting at something greater and hinting at something future, verses 26 and 27 really mark the turn toward Christmas. They mark the turn toward Good Friday. In verses 26 and 27, it is almost as if David becomes like Dr. Strange and he starts like opening this portal through time where you can like see through something beyond his current reality there. Because here's the deal, while David had gone through some really tricky, some really dangerous situations in his life, we can read about these in the books of First and Second Samuel, some of the things that he describes in other Psalms, he had never actually experienced anything so bad as what he's describing here in Psalm 22. Really bad stuff, but not this bad. While enemies had taunted him and threatened him, had David ever experienced a time in which his enemies divided his clothing, cast lots for them? Has David, before this moment, 
or in this moment, ever experienced a time where his hands and his feet were pierced, while his enemies gloated over his bones that he can count? No. As Peter said of David in Acts 2, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would one day set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the, the death and the resurrection of the Christ. And so David is doing here. He is looking forward to a time of the death and the resurrection of his greater son. David sees a man a future king in his line in the house of David who would, who would arrive in the very face of God's enemies as their king. And yet, they would reject him. And this man, this king, would enter into a cosmic struggle on behalf of his people. His enemies would divide his garments and cast lots for his clothing. They would pierce his hands and feet. They would scorn and they would taunt him like David's enemies who in verse 8 said, hey, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. The scoffers who passed by Jesus hanging on the cross said he saves others, but he cannot save himself. Scoffing, they said, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come, now, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then amidst it all, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now here's where our theology of Christmas becomes so important for our theology of Easter. And why we used a historic creed like the Athanasian Creed tonight in our profession of faith to give us some doctrinal guardrails. Many a well-intentioned Good Friday sermon goes flying off the road and saying well-intentioned things like, at the cross, God abandoned Jesus so that he could welcome you. And yet, what is our theology of Christmas? What is our theology of the incarnation, the enfleshing of Jesus. It is that God the Son assumes or takes on a new nature, that he is both fully God and fully man. Two natures now mysteriously unified in one person, not blending his nature, like taking two ingredients and then making something new. No, he doesn't blend. He is God and man, but also without dividing or separating his natures into like two separate persons. He is not some like centaur type creature of half God, half man or something. No, he is the God man. And so as it has been said, without ever ceasing to be what he was, that is fully God, God the Son, without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not, human something new in time and space which had never happened before, that the deity would become something that he was not, the God-man. And so even if we understand Jesus to be crying out on the cross in legitimately felt isolation, in legitimately felt forsakenness on the cross, after all, he is suffering on behalf of sinners. He is, after all, receiving the wrath of God on sinners' behalf. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13 says, by becoming a curse for us in our place. And yet we cannot say that God the Father is angry in some way with God the Son in a way that pits the triune God against himself. 
We cannot say that God the Father abandons God the Son in such a way that divides or fractures or splits the Trinity. The triune God is always and has always been and always will be perfectly united. And we cannot say that God the Father is taking and punishing his son in an act of what many cynics might say is like divine child abuse without also acknowledging the fact that Jesus himself, as Hebrews 7 says, Jesus himself offered himself once and for all as a sacrifice. Jesus freely went to the cross. Or as he says in John 10, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, Jesus says, and I have authority to take it up. So the death of Christ does not break the previously invisible fragility of the triune God. The cross of Christ reveals the glory and the love of the triune God as Jesus offers himself up, as the triune God moves towards redemption, moves towards salvation, moves all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in mercy, in grace, in justice, in wrath. And so while Jesus likely and legitimately felt alone, certainly abandoned by his closest friends and followers, and receiving the just wrath of the sin of humanity in a way in which he, in his incarnation, had never experienced before, when Jesus prays in lament, hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is saying, he is announcing to himself, and he is announcing to all those who might hear him, Psalm 22. Here it is. It's like the first line of a song that everyone knows. He's saying, here it is, Psalm 22, for all to see. Though I feel alone, though I feel isolated, though I might even feel scared, though I am temporarily experiencing God's silence, I do believe that he is with me. I do believe that he will answer. My fears will turn to courage. My doubts will turn to praise. In Psalm 22, David reflects on deliverance from death, but when Jesus takes on Psalm 22 for himself, he begins reflecting on deliverance through death. He suffers, temporarily abandoned, that he might be delivered through death into a resurrection life that literally turns this page of redemption, of a new world order, a world order in which suffering is not meaningless, in which death is not the final chapter. That in the incarnation, God himself has experienced the terror of his own mortality. That's a crazy sentence to say. The God-man, God himself experiencing the terror of his own mortality so that he might offer comfort to those who share the same terror. As we'll see next week in Psalm 23. But more than comfort, what is the result of Jesus taking on this psalm for himself? What is the result of Jesus taking on this psalm that is just far too great, far too wide, far too broad for David's own experience? Verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Jesus suffers in isolation with no plea for vengeance upon his enemies. Jesus prays for the forgiveness of his enemies for their repentance, which even a Roman soldier present at the cross offers when he says, truly, this man was the son of God. 
Jesus is lifted up as king of the nations and the nations, you and me, people of India and Cameroon have come to him, people of China and Turkey, people of Belgium and Australia, people of Morocco and Mexico, of Egypt, Egypt and Ecuador, people of all nations have come to him. The suffering and deliverance of Jesus, the individual, then explodes into the cosmic. The king of all nations brings to himself a kingdom of all nations. Incredible. But for whom? Is it every person who has ever lived in any nation is now, now gets to experience the benefits of Jesus' redemption? No, verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive, even those who at the moment of being self-sufficiently prosperous, the rich, they will one day join in the chorus in the company of the humble, those who recognize I can do nothing apart from you. Those who would say, not my will, O Lord, but your will be done. Not my kingdom, O Lord, but your kingdom come. I recognize that your ways are not my ways. I worship often things that are not worthy. I love things that are not lovely. I demand things that are not necessary. Only your grace, only your mercy, only your salvation, only your forgiveness, which comes to us in a cattle stall and then hung in our place on a cross and then welcomes us from an empty tomb can save. King of kings, and Lord of lords, hallelujah, hallelujah, and he shall reign forever and ever, hallelujah, hallelujah. Verse 30, posterity, meaning all the future, shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn in the future that he has done it. He has done it, or in other words, it is finished. David looks forward to a time when it will one day be finished, that his greater son has done it once and for all. But to all of you who feel isolated, to all you who feel alone, who feel disoriented, who feel scorned in the midst of suffering, to all who feel and experience the silence of God, bring your request to the Lord. Consider his character. Consider his promises. Like David, in trust and in faith in God's power and character, even bring your complaints to him. Not about him, but to him. All the while not forgetting that joy to the Lord, the Lord is come. Not has come in the past, but he has and is. He is present. Let every heart, let your heart prepare him room. Make space for him. Take the quarter down. Move the quarter away and behold his glory. He has spoken and he is with us even until the end of the age. I've read this in several Advent seasons before, but let me close us tonight with some concluding reflections from a 1949 sermon on the Incarnation from a pastor named R.G. Lee. He says, in this season, we remember that the ancient of days has become the infant of days. 
What deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame. From the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth. From exaltation to humiliation. From the throne to the tree. From dignity to debasement. From worship to wrath. From the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from coronation to the curse, from the gory place to the glory place. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined, born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No room for him who made all rooms, no place for him who knows all places. Oh, deep humiliation of the Creator, born of the created woman. But in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us. Let heaven and nature sing. Let's pray. Our triune God, we are just overwhelmed in your wisdom, in your love, in your patience, in your tenderness, in your kindness, in your justice, in your righteousness. That, Lord Jesus, you would come, forsaking all things, forsaking the halls of heaven to become like us. The Son of God becoming a Son of Man, that the sons of men might become sons of God. What glory that you would bring us salvation. God the Father, what you have ordained. God the Son, what you have won and accomplished. And God the Spirit, what you have applied to us. We are thankful. Help us in this month, this time of waiting, this time of expectation, this time of joy, and often this time of grief, this time of sadness. Help us to trust you. Oh, for grace to trust you more. We want to believe. Help our unbelief, we pray. For Jesus' sake, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and for our own increasing joy, we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.